economy and had to figure out some way to make some money, they decided let's let's invest what we have in a home that's just beat up, maybe foreclosure, and uh, let's invest in it, let's fix it up, and let's resell it. So that's the premise. So each week they got a different house that they bought, and sometimes they don't even see the inside of it. It's kind of roll the dice. And, uh, and they want to, they're trying to make some money. It's a unique show. It's kind of fun to watch, the transformation of a house. Um, but so they put this money into remodeling these homes, and they resell for profit, reset their goal. But in each episode, something happens. They hire a professional to come check out the house. Okay, so you got a professional looking at the plumbing, electrical, and the beams, making sure all the the sturdy, the foundation's good, and inevitably, as we sing a lot of this, there'll be one of the professionals that says, I got bad news for you. As we sing a lot of this, you know there's bad news coming, but you don't know if it's going to be the basement, the roof, you don't know what's going on, but there's bad news. Every single episode. And so you can always see it kind of building up the show, and like, oh, what are we going to do? Now we're going to lose money, and they never do. But they say they do. And uh, the market must be pretty good, by the way.
two kings remained loyal to the Assyrians. These Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom, and they kind of taken that captive, and so these kings said, hey, we're going to align with you, and, and so they had a loyalty there. Why? I have no idea, because it did them no good. And their alliance, they sought to undo, really, all the good that King Hezekiah had done. <coughs> However, 640 B.C., at the age of only 24, King Adam was assassinated by his servants. By servants, huh? And, uh, and following King Adam was a boy named Josiah. This is a frightening to me because at the age of eight, not 18, eight, Josiah becomes king. If that's not an indictment on those people, that an eight-year-old had to step in, I don't know what is. But here's an eight-year-old boy, Josiah, keys to the car, so to speak, and this car is breaking down big time. Josiah steps into this. He was really the last good king to reign over Judah. History tells us. When Josiah died at the young age of 39, Judah would have only 
level anyone. He shall worship the Lord God, worship him only. And so we see judgment levied against the priests. And verses 4 through 6 really highlights three categories of this religious offense. There are idolaters, clearly those who worship other gods, other idols. There are idolaters, as Ezekiel talked about, those who committed spiritual adultery. They said, I'm going to follow you, God, and I'm going to turn my back and also have another God on the side. Adultery, spiritual adultery. And then there was a third category of apostates, those who said, it's, it's Zephaniah, who've fallen away from God. They followed him to some degree and then fell away and began to worship the culture of gods. And so we have priests who are to be judged, but then verse 8 tells us princes are going to be judged. Verse 8, they will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. The end of verse 8 is so much more relevant than you realize when we understand the context. These foreign garments refer to a cultural practice which had emerged. And these foreign garments, God's people had begun to wear and become incorporated in their worship. In other words, they put the cultural standards around them and they began to adapt them to God's people. Does that not sound kind of relevant today? With all the cultural standards around us in the church, looks and says, you know, I want to be culturally relevant. I need to do some of these things. I need to wear some of these things. I need to incorporate this into my life. There's nothing new under the sun. That's what was going on here. God's people looked at the culture, took the cues from the culture, not from God. And God says, I'm going to judge you. Whether you're a prince or you're a peasant, when you begin to adopt the culture of cultural norms as God's norms, we're in a problem. We're going to face judgment. Man, we can become so casual sometimes when it comes to this. Verse 9, I think, is kind of difficult to interpret at times, but I would suggest it refers to a careless and casual attitude which led to spiritual treason. They become very callous and casual about the things of God. And it started in their place of worship. And here's the challenge to you and I. It's easy to become far too casual with God. Even in our places of worship. Verse 7 suggests when facing judgment, we dare not be casual. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. We would say in our terms, the time of all of shut up. You're before God. Let all the earth be silent. When it faces judgment, no one can say, God, that certainly doesn't relate to me. But look at how bad everyone else is. God says, be quiet. In light of who I am in my judgment, be silent. Because you've got nothing to say. You've got nothing to offer. Be silent. And so there's a soberness, and far from being casual and comfortable, there's a soberness and a seriousness God's trying to communicate. We love grace. We love to sing about grace. And thank goodness we have grace. But there's the other part of God we would rather not even talk about. Think about it this way. He said, you know what? We have two services, and one of the messages is going to be on grace, the other one's going to be on judgment. The first service will be on judgment. We're not having this many here. We want to hear about grace, right? But yet we can't really fully understand grace until we understand judgment. 
Judge all 
shouts chapter 3 shouts us that the day of the Lord speaks to God's sovereignty. So whenever you come across scripture, the day of the Lord, it involves his intervention, it involves his sovereignty, and certainly, as we've already talked about, it involves God's judgment. By using the words he does in verse 2 and 3 in the context of judgment, God, Zephaniah raises the specter of destruction along the lines of the flood. It's pretty interesting as we look. But he added that judgment on the day of the Lord will even surpass the flood in its totality. According to Zephaniah 1.3, no living creature will be spared punishment, whether human, animal, fish, or fowl, or all face it. Now, if we compare that to the flood, not everything was destroyed in the flood, right? the fish weren't. But in here, it's going to be even greater total destruction. And so this involves God's judgment. And verse 7 really gives the reason, the general reason, is because people sin against God. Or verse 17, I'm sorry. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like blind lives because they have sinned against the Lord. There's a general reason of it all. They sin against God. But what's really interesting is verse 14, 16, and 18, because they tell us that no matter what we bring to the table, it won't save us. Verse 14 talks about a warrior, a powerful warrior. Our human strength is not going to save us from judgment. Verse 16, we read, A day of trumpet and battle cry in the fortified cities in the high corner towers. Our military can't save us. Fortified cities, no matter how many tanks, no matter how many shields, no matter we can't save people from the day of judgment. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold, no money, no resources will save people. It's useless for protecting people from judgment. It should make us shudder when we read verse 18. On the day of the Lord's wrath, all the earth will be devoured in the fire with jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That should make us shudder. Not fold our arms and sit back as if it's no big deal. There's a day coming. There's a near view here, which is a far view. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be a judgment that will cause us to shudder. Indeed, terrifying one. The day of the Lord also involves God's salvation. We're going to break that down even more in the coming weeks. It's expressed in Zephaniah by one of the ways by the use of the word remnant, which speaks to survivors, those who will survive judgment sent by Yahweh on this day. We read about that more in the eschatological times of the end times in Revelation. And at first, the salvation or the salvation focus of the day of the Lord may seem incongruous or really even at odds with salvation. In other words, we look at judgment and salvation and think really never shall acquaint either. They got nothing to do with each other. But really, neither is made complete without the other. Judgment and hope, rather than being irreconcilable themes, 